Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live talks from the Sydney Opera House. I'm Edwina Throsby, Head of Talks and Ideas, and the episode you're about to hear was recorded at the Antidote Festival in 2019. Habibi Rahman was born in 1979 and raised in a small village in Western Burma. After the state refused to recognise the Rohingya as a people, he became an outlaw in his own country. Since 1982, millions of Rohingya have had to flee their homes as a result of extreme violence and persecution. In this discussion with Olivia Rousset, Habib gives rare insight into this global humanitarian crisis and the violence he endured until he escaped the country. Hi. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and pay my respects to the elders past, present and future. Welcome, everyone. I can't see you at all. Um, Today we'll hear from Habib Rahman, who goes by Habib. He's written and published the only first-hand account of what it's like to grow up as a Rohingya in Burma, which is now Myanmar. The very personal stories in this book do justice to the Rohingya experience in a way that news reports and documentaries never will. The UN has said that the Rohingya are the most persecuted minority in the world. They've lived in Western Myanmar for thousands of years, but are not recognised by the Myanmar government, and they're stateless in their own country. Over the past few years, tens of thousands of Rohingya men, women and children have been murdered, hundreds of thousands beaten or raped, and over 700,000 of a million, a population of a million people have fled Myanmar and are mostly still stateless. Habib has dedicated his life to fighting for the rights and freedoms of his people and trying to get the international community to respond to this genocide. He now lives in Melbourne. Please join me in welcoming Habib. Um, thank you, Habib. Tell us, tell us about the, the title of your book is First They Erased Our Name. Can you tell us about that title? Yeah, uh, the, the meaning, uh, the first day race has been chosen because uh, the name Rohingya has not been exist anymore uh, since 1982. New citizenship law has been drafted by Myanmar military. And that was the ethnicity, the race that consists saying that uh, Rohingya are not one of uh, 135 uh, the recognized ethnic group. So after the name, so the place and the village we live, like historical and ancestral building, everything has been demolishing time after time, and they're pushing out our people. That's why we chose, after they remove the name, they can do anything. So we are not exist anymore. That's why we chosen this, the first they erase our name. Even in other parts of Myanmar, people where there aren't many Rohingya, people don't really know about them, do they? That's the sense I got in your book. Yeah, we have uh, the, uh, the since uh, the after independence, we have uh, about 143 ethnic minority group. Many of them, are, they don't know how many groups exist. For example, in Shin alone, we have nearly 56. Uh, the Shin community, they are one of the ethnic group, but in, in them, they classified 56. So we even don't know who are they. So because these are never taught in the school curriculum and the Myanmar history. 
And the Obama has uh, designed since uh, eight, uh, the 1984 and again from uh, 1974, the Buddhism religion has been designed as a, uh, the state religion. And we have the name has been changed to Obama to Myanmar. At the same time, we have from Arkan state, the name has been changed to Rakhine state. So they have very meaningful. For example, the, each of the major ethnic groups, seven major ethnic groups has been given, each of them one state own name. So, so for example, Arkan is uh, comprising all of the ethnic groups, seven ethnic groups living in Arkan are considered to be part of Arkan. But when that changed to Rakhine, so that only considering or, or like uh, honoring Rakhine people. So because of one word changes in constitution, so everything, every meaning is changed. So this is something changed for time over time. So Arakan being the state in the west of Myanmar where most Rohingya live. Yeah. yeah, historically, Arkan was independent kingdom. Uh, before the Bamen king, uh, Bodo invaded uh, the, uh, the Arkan uh, during 17, uh, 1784. But after that, uh, British came into power in that region. So British has ruled from 1824 to nearly uh, uh, 1948, so nearly 130 years. So since after then, when the independence was given to Aung San Suu Kyi father, the state Arkan was fallen into power. A part of today Burma territory. If not, that was independent kingdom. And originally Hindu's dynasty up to ninth century, and the people are combated to Muslim, combated to Christian, combated to Buddhism. So religious migrated, not the people migrated. So why there are other Muslims in Myanmar? Why why were the Rohingya targeted? The Rohingya are the biggest Muslim group in Burma. Yes, we have 16 to 17 different Muslims. So in Arkan, we have three groups. One group is Rohingya, another group is Kaman, another group is Rakhine Muslim. And in central Burma, we have nearly 15 to 16 as well, different Muslim like Indian Muslim and Peshu Muslim, like, like that kind of Muslim. But Rohingya are the biggest group, and in Arkan. So Burma, central Burma, they have uh, the Burmanization campaign and Buddhization campaign. So they want to annex this Rakhine state to be complete Buddhism state and the people combat to Buddhism or Bahmanism. And then we have Rakhine politician, I'm not saying all of them, but Rakhine politician, they have own invasion of the building, they are lost throne. What Rakhine people say is they have lost their throne to Bahman kingdom. So they want to rebuild their Rakhine own independent state. Mm. So between this, uh, the central Burma agenda and this Rakhine politician, Rohingya are fallen in the gap. So that's why in any political transition period, they are wiping out our Rohingya community. Mm. I want to give, this book is very personal and it's an incredible insight into, as I said in the intro, into the experience <laughs> of growing up um, but I want to, Habib has asked that I read rather than he reads, so I'm not just being bossy and taking over. But there's a moment when you're 10 that you describe where your uncle, your favourite uncle, has been arrested and your father knows that he has to gather the money he can to get him out before he's murdered or something worse happens to him. Um, and at the age of 10, he pulls you onto his lap and he says, Habib, there are some things that you will understand later, but for now you must listen to me. You are Rohingya, never forget that. You, but you must never again say this word when you're with people from other ethnic groups, even your best friend. He squeezes my arm and shakes it till I look at him right in the eye. Never, do you understand? Yes, Dad. You can say you're a Muslim, but if you say that you're a Rohingya, they will lock you away and then kill you. That's an extraordinary burden for a 10-year-old to carry. 
Can you talk a little bit about, can you paint a picture of growing up amongst other ethnicities, <coughs> being a Rohingya, daily experience? Yeah, it is true, like, uh, for example, uh, what's happening in Arkan, the many people, those living in central Burma, I mean, majority of uh, the Burmese people or any other minority or ethnic group, they will not accept what's happening in Karen, and we don't know, because we've never been to that land. And what's happening in Arkan, when we ask about someone, they will never know. But we have, from 1991, we have uh, nearly 17 UN organizations based in Arkan alone, including other international NGOs. So we have more than 20, nearly 21 or 22 the United Nations or international organization, they are working on the ground for so nearly 20 years. So they know what, what is exactly what mean. Rohingya are not allowed to move village to village. They cannot go freely. They, they have to have Bami's name to go to school. They cannot go to university. There is movement restriction, and they have to prove their citizenship before they sit for the exam. I mean, up to nine, ten is all right, depend on the area. They have to prove they have application apply, or they, have, they are citizen or not. Or even some of, in some situation, they have guardian change, and because of Bami's name, and they got offer, or they're able to join university, still, in graduation certificate, they could not get it. So depend on the area. And, and you also know that uh, the, the in, in Arkan, if Rohingya people houses have long knife, longer than four inches or six, six inches, they will take away, they will arrest the owner. And if radio, something listening, uh, foreign voice, let's say SW2, BBC or VOA listening, they took away radio and they even arrest the person. And even someone has phone that is illegal to have phone for them. And even they have chicken or goat or cattle, whatever, they have to list to Nasaka. So this UN organization based in there, they know everything. There is nowhere any other country this thing happening. But if you talk to someone from Central Burma, they will not believe it, this happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the people around you, like just as a young boy, <clears throat> you walking down to the river with your friends who aren't Rohingya, and you have stones thrown at you. No one else does, but it sort of goes unmentioned between everyone. Yeah, it is true because uh, the, uh, the name Rohingya is banned. We cannot say we are Rohingya. They used to call us Bengali. Some kind people, they call us Bengali. Some people will say Kala. Uh, that means very uh, the Salah word, insulting word, like comparing like ninja or something like that. So for them, like it is designed from the state, so there is no action taken. So they can abuse us, they can beat us, they can loot from us. Even any authority, like even very lower authority person, they can just come and grab us away or put in jail or there is no trial, no justice. So this thing happening for a long time, but we cannot, we don't feel at the time because we are like grown up in the cage. Mm -hmm. Then later, slowly after that, we learn what, what sort of thing been different to other people. Yeah, it's, you know, you talk about it as an ordinary violence, you know, bribes, humiliations, beatings as being ordinary. It's, it's hard to comprehend, but like you say, if you grow up with it, that's your, your experience. When you were a kid, I can't remember how old, but the authorities came and took your and family's land. They took you the, where your, your family had lived, where your house was and where the land was, and you had to leave your village and, and your family went to another town. Was, how common was that? That was in about uh, 1994 and 1995. So uh, the, the along the hilly of the, uh, the Caledon River. So at the time we have under the State Peace and Development Council. So Town Peace and Development Council, uh, whose uh, name was uh, the Chozowe, Captain Chozowe. 
So he already had demolished a few houses, including one of the Christian churches beside our house. So they want to extend the, the government ST, ST, SPDC office extension. Mm -hmm. They want to build some toilet in those areas. So, so our house was the next. So they came to us, then they want to destroy. If not, not surrender or whatever, then they will put us in, the, in jail. So they call, take away my mom and my father, and both of them got abused, and later on saying that you have to leave this. So that was what my father did, leave the house and the land and business, everything in there. And we moved down to my mom's village in Sitwe. Mm. That was uh, uh, after 1995. Okay. So the military took yeah. your land to build yeah, toilets yeah, on a distinction. Yeah, yeah. There are many things happen because the area I live, like Kladen uh, River, the top of Kladen River. Mm. So the area is uh, the, uh, the name as a like frontier region, mean fighting region, we call frontier region, black region. So the people who ever found in those areas are suspected people. So they can shoot anyone without order. And, and when we have uh, the, the confrontation movement, mean military movement from place to place, they will just come and grab whatever they got because military have not enough food, they have no, not enough transportation, so they have to go by walk for 40 miles, 60 miles, so they will come house to house, so whatever they found, even rice or chicken or whatever, they will carry away. Even you have bicycle, they will take away. Mm -hmm. So even you have boat or whatever, they will take away. So this is called frontier movement. Whoever living in the top of this region or sh the people from Shin State, they're well known, well aware about this. Mm -hmm. And then when there's a similar thing happened um, when you were 17, your dad found out that they were going to take away his father's land and he took you to see it. He, he, I think he said it was um, the inheritance that would never be yours, but he, he really wanted you to know your history. What happened then to you and your father? Yeah, that was at the time I was studying uh, matriculation. I mean, grade 10 is the equivalent to matriculation in Sitwe where I was studying. And my, my grandfather owned a lot of land in Nazi village and also in the Aumingla, one of the, the Gito village that existing in village. So the, uh, the State Peace and Development Council and police uh, ship, the state police ship, they have taken over the land and they divided to parts and then they're selling back to our Rohingya people as well. So my father was claiming at least to have his name or if the government wanted, he's ready to offer, but he has to have his name. Mm -hmm. So he won his the father Hona name. So then he was uh, summoned, mean invited, like call, sent police to put two police guards with a truck and send him and take him to, to a, a state uh, peace and development council office, and and ask him that I was behind him as well. I was not allowed to go in, and telling that look at the example of uh, the lawyer Cholaong. Uh, who is still in Sitwe refugee camp, mm. one of the, the lawyers who was in prison for 17 years. Look at the example of uh, the lawyer Cholaong. And if you want to end up like this, you can go ahead or you have to sign here and leave from here. So that was the order at the time. So my father was crying out there. He tried in many ways, but he got kicked out from there and he had to leave. But when you went to see the land with your father, that led to the two of you being arrested, didn't it? Yeah. 
Because my father go and organize uh, the Rohingya people not to buy the land, he could offer them if they want to buy and he could sell in cheap price. If they don't buy, the authority cannot sell them and they cannot part them. So my father go and the, organize all of them to not to buy and this, are, this land are belong to grandfather. Then they report back to, they don't want to buy, report back to the authority and authority come down and arrest my dad. Mm. You were, you, when you were imprisoned with your father when you were 17, you were both brutally beaten and interrogated. Was that, was that or was there another moment that made you who you are today, that made you such a fighter? Yeah, because uh, we never got justice in there and, and they don't respect us as a human and we always treated uh, less human being or worse than animal. And, and I want to find out really what's happening, what's going on, whether the wrong is with, from our people or whether the wrong is the constitution or whether the military. So I want to find out whether the government, this is what's, what's been going on. So I want to find out then I discover slowly because that is just this discriminatory practice that they've been going on. So there is no way to change them. Mm. Mm. And you're, 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 I, I suspect that you've inherited a lot from your father. He was a, an incredibly strong man who was determined that you and your siblings would have an education. He wanted you to be a lawyer. Yeah. And for a Rohingya to get educated, it was dangerous, wasn't it? It wasn't easy. <clears throat> Yet he pushed and pushed. Why was that so important to him and then to you to get an education? Yeah, at the time after I passed matriculation from Sitwit, but we have all universities are closed because of student marching and the Aung San Suu Kyi was under house arrest. Mm -hmm. And I decided to sneak into Yangon, so I come down to uh, Central Burma and where I study electrical diploma uh, from GTI. And then I contact my father and he said, look, we have to go ahead and find something out and better to have a link with authority or you know something or you find something that can only pursue future or what's going on and we can find out and we can say something. So that means like uh, you can inform to the community, you can let the people know what is injustice, what's been going on to the people. Because mm -hmm. there's, there's a very high illiteracy amongst the Rohingya. Cause it's a t can you talk about how they were effectively, are effectively excluded from education and the effect that has on having a voice more broadly? Yeah, because the, you see, Obama education system is very poor, not only in Rohingya, but in, especially in minority area. The school are not funded by the government, not subsidized by the government, and then we have not enough teacher, and then most of the area, because of illiteracy rate, very high. So the people cannot go for higher education. And particularly because of Rohingya, the, the changes of 1982 citizenship law, they cannot go for higher education. So this makes barrier. So it is very clear because of... 1982 law, can you spell that out for people? That was the moment where the government said that Rohingya wouldn't have citizenship. Yeah, because the, the, the 1982 citizenship law require uh, ethnic, uh, to be ethnic group of one of 135 ethnic group and, and they reduced from 143 to 135. Mm. So saying that Rohingya are not, uh, Rohingya cannot prove prior to living in British occupation, prior to 1823. But actually Rohingya exist there. Rohingya have secondary uh, evidence and ancestral building and the village they have live there for generation, they can prove that. Mm -hmm. But the main thing is they're not only uh, assessing, but also not allowing to recourse to become new citizenship. Under their invented citizenship, they're not allowing. And also section 65 of 1982 citizenship uh, saying that 
if anyone has in the past previous or the national identity card holder like green card or whatever they don't require to be issued national verification card that is in under uh, section 65 but the problem is they're not allowing you know they, they just design this and not allowing and make up reason and not allowing to become citizenship so that are very clear so barrier is not only in education but also by law so Rohingya cannot get education you see today even in uh, the refugee camp uh, the displaced camp within uh, Arkan we have more than 42 concentration camp so the people are, are in apartheid situation and segregated completely blocked out so the new generation they will not even speak Bamis and then at the end, people will say, oh, these people even don't speak Bamis. Mm. If they are Bamis, why they don't speak Bamis if they're born in here? Because the people are separated, blocked, so they will not speak Bamis because they have no communication anymore with Bamis. How many people are in those camps now inside Myanmar? Yeah, we have left about 10 to 15 uh, percent of uh, total overall population, so that is numbering about 300 to 450. So half of them are in those refugee camps since uh, June 2012. So Sitwe alone has, we have nearly 17 camps uh, across the beach, along the beach. Uh, and they are from there since June 2012, so more than seven years. And, and their education, their Medicare, their livelihood, everything is blocked. So people who are doing interpreter or teaching uh, the, the kid, or people who, are, who have phone, or people who are assisting lo uh, the foreign NGOs, they are taken away, they've been arrested, they've been put away, and then they never return alive. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to you going to university, because it was... Can you describe going there? There was a lot of fear and a lot of danger for you. You weren't allowed to say where you're from, but people knew that you were different because of how you looked. Can you talk about the risk that that was and what the experience was like of going to university and eventually finding some people there who you could belong with? Yeah, if you read one of the last story from Bangladesh refugee camp, uh, Harnimos, I think, Shahida, and, and after 1991, uh, the uh, Pitaya operation, one of the beauty and clean operation, their parents moved to the Irauri Delta, and she was born and grown up in there. But in 2003, authorities discovered they are Rohingya, and they sent them back to Arkan, and they settled in Mondo. So in recent violence in, uh, in the 25th of August 2017, their family has to fled to the Bangladesh refugee camp. Before that, she was working with MSF, Mm. medicine from frontier and after she passed matriculation. So these are something proof come up lately. For Rohingya, the law is same. Wherever they found, whether you are in central Burma, whether you are in Shan State, whenever authority found them, because we have not only authority, also some gang and some monks, because some, when our people are fleeing from Arkan, we have, along the way, people are arrested. People are captured, people are surrounded by, not only by authorities, sometimes by monks, sometimes by the gang. So they just call authority straight away because they're saying that we have illegal Bangli in here. They call us illegal Bangli. So they are sneaking into our central Burma. So we have to arrest them, beat them, and send to the authorities. So it is, it is the biggest risk. So for Rohingya, everywhere you stay is the same. Mm -hmm. Habib's being too humble. He's got some incredible stories of his personal experiences, which you'll have to buy the book and read in there. But when, when you were 19, you ended up fleeing the country, finally. And... It is unthinkable the amount of random beatings and torture and arrests that you were subjected to by that time. And when you'd left, Habib was involved with some activists at university and he, they were all arrested and he had a week where he was tortured. 
and he had to flee. You were given a, a very small window. I think your father had said there's, there's, the only hope is to bribe your way out when you're arrested. The only alternative, if you don't get out as quickly as possible once you're arrested, is that you will die or disappear. Someone came to their rescue and essentially said you can escape now and he escaped barely, barely alive, it seemed, from the story, um, and fled over the border into Thailand. You called your father when you'd left. He didn't know where you were and, and he said that there was no going back and that the only peace that a Rohingya can have is inner peace. There was no respite for you. You spent another 10 years in Thailand and Malaysia yeah, after that. Yeah. I don't think that for, for people who aren't stateless, I think it's very hard to fully understand what that experience is like. And many people might think once you're away from that immediate danger in the country, the persecution that you suffered constantly daily, that there would be some safety. Can you talk about the experience of statelessness and how that impacts upon a person even outside of the country? Yeah, I spent about 10 years in Malaysia, so uh, even though we, are, uh, we have UNHCR ID card registration, we are registered with UNHCR, by law, Malaysia is not signatory to refugee convention, so we become illegal immigrant. Mm -hmm. and, and Burma say we are not from Burma, Malaysia say we cannot stay in there and not signatory to refugee convention. So arrest, detention, deportation, deportation means the deport to the border, Thai, Thai Malay border, and handed over to people smuggler. And these, what would that mean, handed to a people smuggler? What, what would happen? For example, I was detained in Malaysia for five times and, and three times deported to Thai border. And the Malaysian Immigration Authority, they have no law to keep us for a long time in, in the camp. They have no budget as well. And situation is very bad and overcrowding. So they asked to sign the voluntary repatriation to give consent. But in Thailand, again, it's not our country. Burma say we are not from Burma. Mm -hmm. So what they did was like midnight, they take us and in the border they drop ups. And sometimes the people smugglers around us, around there, sometimes they hand it over directly to people smuggler. And people smuggler demand random amount to come back to Malaysia. So we have to ring up someone from there, Malaysia, even some NGOs. Last time, one of the NGOs helped pay my money and able to come back there. So these are just in the cycle of arrest, detention and deportation and no work rights and anyone abuse you, you cannot report, so no justice. So you are really vulnerable. Uh, and I have worked in Malaysia, even in construction site, a lot of in construction site. Daytime we used to go to work and nighttime we have to, like seven, eight people, we have roster who will wait for tonight. And someone, yeah, yeah, someone will wake up and look for whether any raid coming toward us or not. Because the raid later are very smart. Some, they use sometimes villagers, sometimes the village head, sometimes without uniform, civil dress, and the, the forces are come later. So at the time when I was in Malaysia, first time they used military force, commando force. Later on they used police force. And until 2009 they used Rela force. Rela. So, Rela, yeah. Rela is like auxiliary force. Yeah. Auxiliary security force. So in, in all of three of them, I was there at the time. So I have experience with all of them as well. So really vulnerable. You, are, you feel like you are surreptitious. You are underground person. And, and the charges are nothing you cannot verify. Once they arrest, so because we have uh, nearly uh, one million, uh, the, according to Malaysia, more than one million illegal immigrants in Malaysia. So regardless of whether you are a refugee or not, everyone treated equal. Mm. 
And a lot of people, they don't want to see any more people, foreigners coming, staying here. So that means whenever we got arrested, uh, like authority just come up uh, 20 to 30 with the truck, you know. And but they, when they round us, it become hundred of authority. But actually, not all of them are authority. Sometimes villager, sometimes they have gang. They come up who hate foreigner. So that means you got bad treatment. Mm. You cannot tell them. You cannot look them. You, what they say, you have to listen to them. If not, you got abuse. So these are everyone facing. No rest. Yeah, no rest. Everyone is facing this, the same thing. And authority come from central area. Let's say the area I live, Ampang, and then the Malaysian authority are from, come from immigration, Putrajaya, immigration department. So it is about 50 kilometers far away, and they don't know where we're living in. So the villager has guided them to where the foreigners are living. Mm. So these are, these are my experience at the time. So it was very worse. Even we sometimes try to, or st I mean, situation now is much better, but at the time was worse. Mm. Yeah, even sometimes we think we will rent the house behind the most, it will be more safer. No, after you pray and come back and the authority are waiting there. <laughs> you can so, laugh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a very bad time, you know, like you, really vulnerable and you have, you cannot have bank account, you cannot have travel. And even you walk or you go anywhere, so police will come and motorcycle and stop you. So it is really vulnerable. It's so you, you have no, no value. So stateless is very like uh, nothing you have to, to place. Like you cannot rent a house, you cannot find a job. So everything is difficulties. And then uh, these, uh, back in Malaysia, we, cannot, we don't get any kind of assistance from UNACI as well. Because we have at the time more than 40,000 refugees in there from Myanmar. But today we have nearly 150,000. So they, they cannot look every refugee as well. This, yeah. Reading your book, though, it's, you know, and I understand why, but it's like at every stage you kind of, uh, by trying to move forward in your life, you're pushing yourself further and further into danger, whether it's seeking your education or in Malaysia you get involved in fighting to support Rohingya people and you get involved with NGOs and eventually with some journalists to help tell the story of what's happening to your people. Was it that that then forced you to flee to Australia? Can you tell us about the decision to come to Australia? Yeah, I was, uh, during I was in Malaysia, I did not think to come to Australia as well. And I, I didn't know where I'm going, but uh, the, at the moment, what happened to our people, include, including all refugees from Burma. So we are in the cycle of arrest, detention, and torture, and exploitation in there. So we don't have any uh, local media reporting about what's happening to them. Even the cane punishment was introduced and a lot of people are getting arrested and detained there and women are abused and even family members, even some children born in hospital just after born and the, the immigration authority come and pick up them and put in detention. So we have this kind of case a lot in Malaysia. Then we, I first met Sophie Ansel here, who was who visited in Malaysia as a freelance. She was and the co-author. Yeah, yeah, she wrote yeah, the book, yeah, journalist. Yeah, and we start trying to cover this information and reporting to Amnesty, including Amnesty Australia, and also sending to Human Rights Watch. So we send all international NGOs because we want to improve situation. It is not about like we are, we are trying to blame, but this is a reality what we've been facing in there. So then we have to, I also involved with working with NLD exile group in Malaysia, and we have Democratic Federation group in there, and ABD have all Obama, the alliance group, 
and also the, we have Rohingya organization. And I lead a few protests in, in Kuala Lumpur as well, in front of Chinese embassy, Russia embassy, Thailand, Bangladesh, and Singapore embassy, because of their cooperation with military. And then Thailand uh, towing back our Rohingya people into international water at the time, 2000, uh, 2009. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this become, uh, activism become risk. And I got a few times questioned by uh, the Malaysian intelligence police, mm. saying that they can detain me uh, without question, without trial for two years under internal security act, official security act. So I decided to leave from Malaysia mm. because it was like become rigs for me. I just want to read a short bit about um, when you arrive in Australia. Um, you, you, after a terrible boat journey, you can hear the helicopter and the, the Navy patrol boat comes to rescue you. The rescue operation begins. The Australians haul us aboard, wrap us in towels, give us something to eat and drink, a brief medical check and some warm clothes. I'm the only one who can speak English and I translate for the others to answer the officers' questions about where we come from and where we've travelled from. For the first time in our lives, the authorities treat us with dignity, respect and compassion. Am I dreaming? The day after, 25th of De December, we're on our way to the detention centre on Christmas Island. I'm given a new identity and will henceforth be known as Habibur Rahman 1979 5120 3 c 0571 mal 001 sg Habib. Deep down, I feel happy simply to be alive. I'm ready to be reborn. <laughs> what happened then, once you arrived in Australia? Yeah, at the time I was arrived, we don't have uh, the, the detention centre across mainland. So I spent about three months in Christmas Island and FAST detention center NIDC in Darwin that was open. So FAST, our group was transferred to there. And after the refugee check and we have security check, mm. it's taken about two years. <laughs> and uh, I did rooftop protests because of not getting any answer. You were 32 months in detention, were you? Yeah, so uh, after, after 12 months, I involved in uh, hunger strike rooftop protests and immigration come to inform me your refugee status has been granted. And I checked the date, it was nine months back, and why did not, they did not inform us from three months. And they no, knew for nine months that you had refugees. Yeah, yeah, and they informed us after one year, after we did rooftop protests. And again, we have, they said you have to go through security check. We don't know what that means for. So simply we discover like a glass of water you keep outside, and longer and longer the water will be dust. You know, this is something, <laughs> security check. And they are like uh, the system, the ignition and provocation that make you crazy, driving you crazy. And if anything happen, then they say you are risk to security. This is what is their, their conduct. I find out later on that that's it. Because we are simply, we have nowhere to go. I just come to Australia. We tell everything and I'm well known, but they still lock me up. So... And even some of the group, they're getting their refugee status straight where they can out, but our group not. And security check after the health check, after the character check, it's take about 32 months. It's quite a long time, and, and to airport lodge and Melbourne and round and round and taken about all 32 months. Mm. <laughs> that would have been incredibly frustrating knowing what was happening to your family. Where was... Where was your family during that time when you made that protest? Yeah, at the time, 2012, June, oh, the, exactly that uh, the violence started in my hometown, in my village. So I was in Australian detention centre. Uh, we have only internet access for one hour and we cannot contact by phone. 
So I have to go through all Messenger and then Facebook to someone from Yangon and relative from Malaysia, and we got indirectly contact from the ground there, who is someone there. So at the time, my family we are already displaced, and they were in situated refugee camp, including with my auntie, uncle, everyone we are in there. There's but, not there's not safety in Sydney. Yeah, yeah they are in refugee camp. They, they the authority pushed them to the concentration camp. Yeah. So all of them are in there. And my brother was uh, in China, Burma border, and he was also arrested in there. So, but I, I cannot tell what happened to me. I just looking off their information and my family think I, I'm not helpful. I, I, I cannot do anything for them. And they spent more than one year after that, they ran away from refugee camp and coming to central Burma. Then along the way, my mom and sister, they got arrested and put in uh, insane prison for nearly one year. After that, they have some lawyer like bribery and create identity and something they're able to get released. But release mean release from uh, the Yangon prison and authority come back and take send back to Arkan. So they attempt a second time coming to Yangon. Mm -hmm. Then they finally travel to China, Burma, Bora. And my younger sister live in Bangladesh refugee camp because she follow with her husband. So they fled before 25th of August 2017 because they got information that there will be big violence. So two weeks earlier, they fled to Bangladesh and they come back to refugee camp and they're still living there. And my brother and mom, they're still in the border. Yeah. And you couldn't explain to them that uh, you were locked up. You're in Australia, but you yeah. couldn't do anything. Yeah, culturally, like uh, we don't share what happened to my personally to my family because that will make more suffering for them at the top of what they've been facing. And I never tell what happened to me as well. And I just ask their information mm. or so mm. try to help because I cannot help them. I'm in detention. So that was the worst time actually here. Yeah. I can imagine. Um, we, we don't have too much time before I want to open to questions, but I just wanted to talk, you, you said in your book, everyone knows that like, when you think of, of Burma or Myanmar, people think of Aung San Suu Kyi, and she's, she's the, 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 the voice of Burma. You, you called her the one voice of Myanmar and said that she had a great opportunity, but she be betrayed the Rohingya. Can you talk about that? Yeah, the, uh, the, my father was actually a member of NLD as well, but I didn't mention in the book because they can track back there. And many Rohingya were also a member of NLD, but she was different from the past. What NLD we, being the party. That yeah, the party, yeah, National League for Democracy. And she became different from the past. And she herself saying that not to see her as a human right icon, to see as a politician. And since she became into power in 2015, before she uh, at, at test for election, she wiped up all Muslim, uh, the member from her party as well. Since after she became government, and she, she providing reverse information, and defending military, blocking international aid, and blocking human rights envoy, blocking UN fact-finding mission. She was doing everything her limited power using to defense military. Mm. She even saying that she loved her daddy found that army. So she become totally different. Mm. She's like really in, in her government website saying that these are fake rape, what Rohingya are telling is not true. She become totally different and very defensive and also resisting like irresistible. Mm. Was there hope, like when she won the Nobel Peace Prize, was there hope amongst, amongst the Rohingya that she might say their name to the international community or had that been killed by then? 
Yeah, we, we did hope that, but she became quite different and aggressive. And, and it is not that she afraid of military because she has defended um, the, I mean, she has resisted military for nearly 22 years. Mm. And it is not true that she is afraid of military, that's why. And, but she become part with, taken side with military mm. and uh, the leading the way democracy for majority representative democracy mm. or Buddhism, major, the majority representative democracy and nothing to do with minority and meaning that minority has nothing to do with democracy. So this is the way they're leading, these are proof. Mm. The, the, you know, for many years, the international community may not quite have known what was happening to the Rohingya, but two years ago, it was unavoidable to be seen when 700,000 people fled across the border into Bangladesh after incredibly violent pogroms and ethnic cleansing and rapes and murders. Why do you think the international community isn't doing more now? They, they, they know, right? We know what's happening. Yeah, because so we have uh, the Bangladesh and Myanmar, they quickly come to sign agreement for repatriation. Uh, to say that uh, the Burmese government is not driving them out, they're just out for conflict or minor attack, each other religious conflict, something like that. And uh, the Myanmar government agreed to sign and also signing with memorandum of understanding with UNHCR and UNDP uh, just to avoid international pressure and, uh, and to avoid international prosecution. Mm. And also the, the Bangladesh government, they know that the international community keep the crisis alive or international community fail in Rohingya case. And Burmese government know that there is no other country or no mechanism body will take action onto them. So... Why do, why do they know that? Why won't, why won't the US or the UK, why won't there be an intervention? Yeah, we have superpower country. They play major role in Security Council and United Nations. So they have their own interests of where they're willing to interfere. You know, and and doesn't matter China or Russia, they have revival. It doesn't mean they will not take action. UN has to do their job. And and the power of UN has to be backed by this developed nation. They cannot go like this genocide unpunished. And then this is not about the future, but also for the past. This Burmese military, Burmese government, they've been uh, the, doing this kind of heinous crime, not only genocide, ethnic cleansing, war crime. We have in Shan State ongoing crime. We have in Kashin State ongoing crime. In the past, we have with Karen community and also with Shin community. So every minority you see in India border, in Bangladesh border, in Thailand border, in Malaysia, every, all of them are minority. All are non-Buddhist community. So these are ongoing crime for the past 40, 50, 60 years. So Burmese government never feel pressure for what they've been doing. That's why very important to take action, not only for the past, but also for future. What's going to happen now? So there's 700,000 people in Bangladesh in the refugee camps <clears> there. What, what do you see? What's the solution, Habib? <laughs> What, what yeah, uh, those just from uh, 25th of August 2017, we have nearly 800,000. Okay. If you look, calculate from the number from 2012, June, it is nearly 1 million. And we have the past people from 1991 and 1978. Some people are third generation of repatriated refugees. Some been two, three times repatriated, and they turn up the third time as a refugee in refugee camp. So they have well experience of what that repatriation means to. And repatriation has to guarantee, like relocation to origin village and right to citizenship and lifting all kind of restriction and also rehabilitation program. But we have the same situation going on in Burma. The people, those left in Burma, they are in trap in their own village, and some of them are in the Gito type refugee camp. Mm -hmm. 
So we are seeing this same similar situation and how come these people can be sent back to this same situation under the banner of repatriation. So that could not be happen. So I, but that's why I'm quite agree with what US state congressman and Malaysian prime minister said. Uh, the Rohingya should be given equal rights citizenship or they, are they will be given opportunity for founding their own state. That will be the last solution. And, and Burma's government is not in position to take action because they are the main perpetrator. They will be protecting from international prosecution. So only solution is rely in the hand of international community. They have to do whatever they can because today we have nearly 85% of population, total population has been wiped out. Mm. It is, we, we are talking about nearly 2 million, not only 1 million from recent, but also in the past from 78 and 91. We have uh, in Pakistan, we have in Saudi Arabia nearly 400,000 and 150,000 in Malaysia and another 40,000-50,000 in, in, in displaced situation in Thailand as well. Mm. So all of them have to have a home to go back from where they belong to. Mm. We cannot just let pretend that they will go back or there is peace or there is security, okay, everything. Mm. We cannot pretend to be like that. This will become regional problem. Those in Bangladesh will start secondary migration to Malaysia, Thailand. Those from Malaysia, Thailand will start territory migration and going to, like me, I myself come to Australia because after spending long years. So this will create regional big problem. And we have also many other reasons. We have exploitation, sexual and organ demand in the market. And a lot of crimes will be going on around there. So that's why we all country have to come together to find solution. I'm, we could go on and on, but I'm going to open up to questions very soon. There are two microphones here down the bottom and up the top. So if you want to ask Habib a question, please um, make your way to the microphone now. Um, Habib, what, what can we do? What can the people in this room do? Yeah, the, the country, those are taking refugees and the country, those are providing uh, the aid in Bangladesh. For example, one million population in Bangladesh refugees. Every day, if we provide one dollar for each of them, we need every day one million dollar. So who can and which country can provide for that long period? That is not solution, just temporary relief. So then again, we have business tie with Burma. For example, from Australia, we have uh, the military aid providing to the uh, Myanmar military from Australian government. And we have university affiliation with Yangon University, Yangon-based university. And we have Woodside Petroleum Project, $500 million investment in Arkan oil and gas project. So we have many ties, diplomatic ties, we have business ties. So country like this, they have to come together to use their power, having this good tie to see ongoing situation and improve ongoing situation as well. So they can do something for the better. This is the best way what they can do. Not just letting off and then impose just minor sanction and travel ban. That doesn't work. That is just old habit. So we have to have all what kind of uh, the, uh, the sanction we can impose. Not only the action, but also sanction and also support United Nations, support Security Council to take action. Mm -hmm. this, will, this will be only bring solution for them. Those same companies are vested interests though, aren't they? Yeah. In the government, yeah. So, so have we got anyone at the microphones? I can't see. Number one down the bottom over here. Uh, hi. Um, so, yeah, you would have travelled with a lot of people, um, a lot of diverse people coming across for a variety of reasons now. Uh, you were given refugee status. I just wanted to know what your thoughts are on, let's say, people that didn't achieve, uh, that were declined refugee status and the Australian government sending them back to, say, Malaysia or Thailand or back to their original, uh, original place. 
You mean Rohingya people or, or people oh, just, from just in general? Say yeah. Yeah, yeah. I will. Uh, I will. I will take. I will say from the corner of Rohingya. Uh, this is up to the government. You know, in migration at in the past we have IMA arrival. That means a regular marine time arrival. But then that the word been changed. Illegal marine time arrival. You know. So just the word changes and the meaning change. And migration act change. And the way process, 90 day standard, that been changed. So like security check, I say we keep the bottle, a bottle of water away for a long time, the bottle become dust. So this is something. So that's why whether they wanna they are doing process or whether they are these are doing like punishment. People not to come or people not to stay, and doing something, example with those people who are in here, that is a crime. For example, we will punish this group, we will not grant this visa, and we will just make them fail. We have many evidences, the, the process has been delayed, and then looking more and more seen, you know, and looking some faults, and then failing the application, and cutting off the budget of like uh, legal aid, you know, and not allowing to go like for through the procedure. Like when you fail, you have like a appeal and then tribunal, and that that been cutting off and changing in migration act, and then uh, also trying to the use power to deport back. You know, that is not consent of the person, and compelling them to leave. So these are something punishment. That is not the process. So the process is different meaning because we have in Australia we don't have a fixed immigration system. So that always changes based on which government come into power. And they have different narrative. So that's why very hard. And this is the way how they inform to the people. For example, let's say if we don't grant them visa or whatever, what will happen? For example, we have people arrive uh, the, after the policy changes of uh, August, uh, 12 of August, I think 15 or 12 of August 2012. We have nearly 15,000 people arrival. So what they've been doing in the community, they not got work right for the first three, four years. So they are in the community, just getting Centrelink paid, and they are sick, they are crippled. They're not going for any prior job training or anything. They just go up and down regularly and sit there, and they have children grown up, you know. And when they got granted a work right after three years, they don't know what to do because we already make them the system cripple them. You know, and now they are struggling to get the job or training or learning the language or going to school. And after that, we have temporary visa system introduced that require move to require moving to regional area. So then, regional area we have no housing system, and the regional area the real estate agent are very new to with them. They don't want to rent the house to even who are rely on Centrelink. Don't say about bridging visa or safe haven temporary visa. We we've been facing this a lot. We know that, and they ask for recommendation letter, support from community letter. They don't want to rent because there is no housing much market as well, and there is no job. Farmer themselves in regional area, they are quite struggling. So when we are pushing these people into there and cutting off their payment, so there will be these people who will live in here for limbo, just making them, compelling them to leave from the country. So these are just some kind of punishment. This is not actual uh, to say that, oh, these people are failed for integration or these people are not contributing to Australia. But this barrier also needs to be lifted. Then we could see, because these people will stay here, for example, Rohingya, they have nowhere to go. Situation back in home is worsening. So where are they gonna, they're going to stay here. So not, not looking after them or not granting them or anything, then they will be live here forever as a limbo and they will be crippled as like now. So this will create some kind of disaster. Mm. Thank you.
Is there someone upstairs? I can't see very well, but no. Oh, yep. Come down if you, if you can. Was there a question upstairs? Thank you, Vivian. Sorry to hear Rohingya people are having to go through this uh, for a long time and still ongoing. Uh, I wanted to ask, you've informed, of, informed us what Australia can do as a government. I'm curious what an individual like me or Australian citizen can do to alleviate the suffering or transform the conflict from individual level or a guy who is aspiring to go to go to Bangladesh or Myanmar to do some humanitarian work, what would you say he can do? Yeah, Many we have. Uh, yeah, thank you very much. We have many the Australian NGOs. They are working on the ground in Bangladesh as well, and we have uh, UNHCR Amnesty in here as well. So whoever wants to make individual contribution, they can contact them. Or we have Rohingya organization in here, Sydney, and also in Melbourne, like Australian Burmese Rohingya organization. You can Google it, go there if you want to donate. So for example, Australian Burmese Rohingya organization based in Melbourne. So we collect donation, but we have three categories. One is for who are trapped in Burma, and one is for who are in transit country, like in Bangladesh. Another one is for vulnerable group who are in here, who has not getting paid, or crippled, or elderly age, or single mother or father like that. So whoever can make contribution through our website, there is bank account and every detail is there. And the other thing is like uh, every individual, like for political purpose, they can ask their local uh, electorate and ask MP and ask the foreign minister to add and do something. And But the historically, Australia has very less interfering in Burma political affair, but they have but a lot of business tie and diplomatic tie. So they can use this power to, uh, to, to have change, to pressurize Burmese regime. So through your local MP and through organization those are working for the Rohingya as well. And what would you suggest they say, just if he contacts his local MP or if people want to write to politicians, what would you ask them to say? The, 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 the Australia has a responsibility on foreign affairs as well, and, and mostly the narrative of the saying stopping the boat. You know, also, if you don't stop them from there and not improve the situation, you don't know they will come up in the next 10 years to here or not, you know. And then the Australian government has already providing uh, the million dollar aid for Rohingya in there, but that is not solution for long term. So we have to find political solution. So that, this is something the Australian government can join as a part of later Security Council member, join with United Nations, support, you know, mm -hmm. and for example, Canada, they have power to add uh, for referring to ICC. Australia can do the same thing, mm -hmm. you know, and for international intervention. In the back of your book also, there's um, a whole lot of resources for further reading, but there's also um, NGOs and um, other organisations that you talked about. But it's the Australia Burmese Association, did you say? Yeah. 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 Um, thank you. Down here. Hi, thank you for being here. Um, I recently read a book by a North Korean defector called The Girl with 12 Names, and it remind your um, experience with changing your name to Habib Rahman, and the, um, the series of numbers 
while you were being detained with Habib at the end. Um, and I was just wondering how you think your self-identity has changed through this and um, if this kind of, like your, the land was stripped, the Rohingya um, term has been stripped from you all as a group and then also individually. Um, and so I was just wondering if you think your self-identity, both as an individual, as a collective group, um, has changed. No, that that is uh, uh, depend on like uh, it's depend on situation. But change identity doesn't mean it will change uh, the situation back in home, uh, because Rohingya is like uh, because of Muslim. I, as I tell you, after June 2012, we have the violence started in Arkan. That violence spread across Central Burma as well. We have Mogwe, Mandalay, Yangon. We have five other different locations. They start attacking of other Burmese community, other Burmese Muslim as well. And then people are proud to hang up with the symbol of like not to doing business with Muslim or not to sell or Muslim, totally Muslim ban village, something like that. So these are provocative by the government. So not only of Rohingya, but also of, of the being Rohingya as well. So identity and religion, they both in both. I think also very strongly in the book, I got a sense that you're, through your father, through your grandmother, through everyone in your family, because of years and years of persecution, you and I assume a lot of Rohingya carry a very strong sense of your history. Yeah, they, that is who they are. It's, it's yeah. more so than other people, perhaps like us, who are less threatened and, and need to hold that, that. But your father, you know, is an incredible, and your mother, incredibly strong people who his, one of his main missions seemed to be that he would let you know who you are, let you know where you came from and not let you forget it and let you know what you were going to become. And that's um, something he, he wanted you to be a lawyer and to always fight for your people. Is that something you hope to continue to, to do, to one day study law? Yeah, I, I did not lose my hope yet, so I'm still ongoing. So hopefully one day. Yeah. At the moment, Habib, you, you can't study, but he'd have, he, he could study, but he'd have to pay all the yeah. fees up front. So if someone wants to start a GoFundMe and put him through law school, yeah. I think he'd be an incredible asset. <laughs> but um, is there anything else you wanted to add? We've got a, do we have any more questions? We've got a couple of minutes left, but is there anything else you wanted to add? Uh, actually, this is a big picture, so it depends on the question, you know, so okay. I don't really know where to start and where to go. All right. Yeah, a lot of things happening. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, I think um, Habib will be signing books in the foyer, and I'd highly recommend it. I, I was saying to him earlier, well, at times I found it really hard to read some of the reports on the, the terrible, unthinkable abuse that the Rohingya have undergone. This book is different. It's not a completely harrowing account. Yes, it's terrible, but you really walk in his shoes, in a sense, and get an understanding of what it means to be that person who is being ripped from their place and having, you know, managing to hold on to who they are while um, everything is being taken from them. And I, I applaud you as, you know, an advocate and as an author and as someone who's continuing to fight. And I really do hope that you get that law degree and I'm sure you will. But can you join me in thanking Habib? Yeah, thank Thanks for listening. And please rate and review Ideas at the House in your favourite podcast app. 
You can also listen to more Sydney Opera House podcasts at sydneyoperahouse.com slash podcasts.